this month and calling it Orange Tober. Orange is a significant color here at the chapel because to us it represents more than just a color. In fact, the color red, we say, represents the heart of the home. And the color yellow represents the light of the church. And we believe as a church family that when the church and the family come together, when red and orange come together, that red and yellow come together, that makes orange. And when, when, the, when the church partners with families and families partner with the church, we can make the most astounding impact in the life of a child, in the next generation. To us, that is everything that orange represents. And we love our kids and our students here at the chapel. And when I think about this concept of orange and building into the next generation, there's probably not a person that represents that better than a man named Todd Enderly. This is Todd. Todd uh, was tragically killed in a car accident just this past week. Todd Enderly's been a member at the chapel for many, many years. Todd and his wife, Lori, and their, their whole family kind of grew up here. Uh, he started out at our Sandusky campus, and then when we opened up our Norwalk location, because they live in Milan, started attending the Norwalk campus. And when I think about making an impact in the lives, not just kids and students, but people, in, in, in me, in my life, Todd Enderly was the epitome of that. I used to joke sarcastically sometimes and say, you know, when you think about the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I would say next in line was Todd Enderly. When he would text me or send me an email, he'd sign it, the other Todd. <laughs> and what he really should have signed was the better Todd, the more like Jesus Todd. When I think about Todd's life, Todd is probably one of the people, like if, if Jesus were to walk this earth right now, here today, I have a feeling he would look and sound a lot like Todd Enderley, because Todd Enderley looked and sounded a lot like Jesus. Todd served, um, has served our chapel in so many different ways ways. He, he served as a past elder uh, on our leadership team. He's, he's for years and years and years served in our kids' ministry. He served in our kids' ministry when he had kids, but even when he didn't have kids that were in the kids' ministry, he continued to serve because he believed in making a difference in the lives of kids. Todd, even though he was a kindergarten through fifth grade core volunteer, a small group leader, uh, because he believed the transition from elementary to middle school was so important, for the last four years, Todd's been going with a group of middle schoolers to a summer camp to help them bridge that gap from elementary into middle school. This is a picture of Todd at, the, at one of those conferences, just hanging out, doing life, sharing life with kids. I can't tell you the number of people that have commented. If you've, if you've followed our Facebook posts and you see the comments, you see the incredible legacy 
that his life has left. Todd had the ability to make a person within five minutes feel like they were the most important person in the world. Todd saw people. He listened to people. And he paid attention to kids and students, even the, even the ones that drive you crazy, <laughs> even the ones that seem like they're a bother, even the ones that seem like they had problems. Todd just took an interest. I was reading comments. I, I read one comment from, a, from a, a single mom who said, I don't know where we'd be without Todd Enderley. He always seemed to show up when we needed him the absolute most. Todd would show up at a person's house and dig a ditch. Todd would show up at a person's house and uh, help fix something that was broken. Todd would uh, show up at a person's house when there was a loss and just show care and love. An umpteen number of children's lives have been touched by Todd's. This, this past week, as Pastor Eric and Pastor Charles were meeting with the Enderly family to start planning a funeral for Todd, his wife Lori said, hey, can you please pass a message to this Todd and my wife Lisa? She said, a few days back, I was getting something ready to eat, and I said, Todd, what do you want? And he said, I, I'm good. And she said, well, that's not like you. Are you okay? Are you sick? She said, come on, you need to eat something. And you know what Todd's reply was? No, not today. Because I'm fasting for Todd and Lisa's son, Carter. That's who Todd Enderley was. And he's going to be hugely missed. And it, it's, it's leaving a gaping hole in, in their family. But it leaves a gaping hole in our family, the Chapel family. And I just wonder, how are we going to fill that hole? Because, you know, that's what God's calling us to do and be. It's, it's, to, it's to fill the gap that is left in children and students' lives by finding some way, every single one of us, to step up and do something. It doesn't mean that you have to all of a sudden start volunteering in Chapel Kids Ministry every weekend, although, hey, Becky will take you if you're interested and we always need more help. But it can mean the simplest of things is when you see a, a family walk in, instead of just shaking the dad's hand or saying hello to the mom that you know, it means getting down and just paying attention to a child. Saying, how are you? What's your name? And then next week when you see him, just say, hey, Billy, it's good to see you again. How was school this week? Just being another person that loves a child. That's what God's calling us to do, to fill that gap. And nobody did it like Todd Enderley, but man, we can sure try. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what it means to be an orange church. And before we dive into God's word together this morning, I'd just like for us to pray together. God, thank you that you love us, and thank you that you're with us. And we especially pray for the Enderly family right now. God, would you bring your comfort and your peace even in this? And God, we pray for our kids, whether they're two years old or whether they're 20. God, we pray for middle school students and high school students and elementary kids. 
God, we pray that we would be the kind of church that comes alongside families and that families would step up and do their part as well. And that through your power and your love, kids would move one step closer to you. You would change not their, just their life here, but their entire eternity. To that end, we pray and ask for your favor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2015, uh, a new concept was introduced to our world as we know it called the master class. And for those of you that don't know what a master class is, it's, it's an online subscription where whatever kind of your thing is, you can learn from someone that has mastered that thing. All right, and through through this through this tool, you can learn from the best of the best. So, for instance, if you're uh, if you love playing tennis and you want to improve your tennis game or maybe your pickleball game, uh, you can learn from the best of the best, Serena Williams. Or if you want to learn how to make um, like five star quality restaurant meals in the comfort of your home, you can learn from the best of the best and take a master class from people like Gordon Ramsay, or if you want to improve your ball skills or your shot, you can learn from four-time NBA star Steph Curry. That's what a master class is. is. And, but what if I told you that the Apostle Paul, found it in the pages of scriptures, wants to offer a master class to you and I? And unfortunately, it's not on the subscription. We can't just, you know, get online and, and listen to the Apostle Paul. But his story is found in the pages of Scripture, in the book of Acts, specifically where we've been studying over the last weeks and months together. And I think if the Apostle Paul were to offer a master class, it would be a class that every single one of us at some point in our life has or will desperately need. And his class would be on how to endure hardship. How to endure hardship. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 23 and 24, and we're going to learn some lessons from the Apostle Paul. And this is a timely, <laughs> timely message, isn't it? There's so much hardship going on in people's lives and in yours. I, I messaged Eric uh, the other day, and I said, so how do we do this again? <laughs> Endure hardship? We're going to be preaching to ourselves this weekend. So I want to give us kind of a, a, a synopsis. And this weekend is going to be session one of Paul's master class, and we're calling it Remaining Faithful to Jesus. And then next weekend, as we dive into uh, Acts chapter 25, we'll kind of go to session two of this master class and continue to learn from him uh, together so I want to give us a, like a 50,000-foot overview of Acts chapter 23 and 24, just so we get the context and we know a little bit of what's going on in general, and then we'll pick out some lessons we can learn from the Apostle Paul. So Paul is forced to stand uh, before the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Jewish courts, to defend himself. He's been arrested, falsely accused. He's uh, in trouble with the law, even though he's done nothing wrong. It seems all so unfair, and now he's having to go before the court system of the day. And it says once Paul uh, explains that he's on trial for believing in the resurrection, that's what he's on trial for, there's this split. The Jewish court is made up of Sadducees, and they don't really believe in a future resurrection. 
okay, that, that, that someday we'll receive a new perfect body that Jesus has created for us and be resurrected to everlasting life with him. So the Sadducees, they don't believe in any resurrection at all. The Pharisees, they do believe in a future resurrection, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul was defending the resurrection of Christ. It was the resurrected Jesus that had appeared to the apostle Paul and had changed his life radically, that had moved him from persecuting Christians to being one of the greatest spokesmen for Christianity that ever walked the planet. And so this riot ensues, all surrounded around the Apostle Paul. And then Paul's nephew warns him that there's 40 zealous Jews that are plotting to kill him. And so he sent, he's sent to Felix, the governor of Caesarea, for protection. Like, life just seems so unfair, doesn't it sometimes? And I'm sure it was feeling this way to the Apostle Paul. You jump over to chapter 24, and it just continues. Tertullus, who was like a Jewish lawyer, he presents his case uh, to Felix against Paul. Again, Paul's being attacked. Next thing we know, Paul gives his defense to Felix, and he's bold, and he's courageous, and we'll read a little bit more about that defense in just a few moments. And even though it seems like Felix knows that Paul is innocent, Felix sentences Paul to prison for two years unjustly. And yet this is what Paul is facing. So probably there are those of you in the room that at times in your life, you feel like, man, what the heck? What gives? When's it going to stop? Why all this? Why is life so unfair? I'm sure the Enderly family is feeling like, why? How is this right? How is this fair? And I think Paul was probably feeling that as he sat in this jail cell again for trying to do the right thing. So I think there's three lessons that we can learn with and from the Apostle Paul. Three ways to remain faithful to Jesus amid difficulties. And I don't know about you, but I need to know how to do that better. Main you too. So what can we learn? I think the first thing that we're going to see is that Paul maintained a clear conscience. How do we stay faithful to Jesus amidst difficulties? Make sure that we maintain a clear conscience. Twice he says this, once in chapter 23, once in chapter 24. In verse 1 of chapter 23, Paul, he's gazing intently at the high council. Remember, he's brought before the court system of the day, and he's having to defend himself. And his first words are, Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. Wow. That is a bold, courageous statement. Like, could you say that? Could I say that? I've always lived with a clear conscience before God. Wow, that's a legacy. That's something to chase after. That's something to live for, to be able to say, I've always lived with a clear conscience. In in chapter 24, Paul says something similar as he's defending himself. He says, I admit that I follow the way, which was, it was just a term that they used to describe this new movement of Christian faith 
that was occurring. It says, which they call a cult. People didn't understand Christianity. In fact, probably some of you have friends that you're like, what church do you go to? Isn't that a cult? Like, what do they really believe over there? They're not, it's not like they aren't even a denomination. Like, are they just out there believing and doing their own thing? <laughs> and the same thing was happening in the early church. It says, but I, I worship the same God of our ancestors, and I believe firmly in the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope, he says, in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. And verse 16, he says, and because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. This word conscious that Paul uses uh, both in chapter 23 and 24, it's the same Greek word uh, that can be pronounced by sunedesis. Now, the, the Greek word is, is really referring to the conscious or the soul. In fact, uh, the, the Greek dictionary puts it this way, the soul as distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and to shun the latter, commending one and condemning the other. Our conscience. It's the deepest part of who we are. It's, it's so clear closely connected to the very soul of who we are. And our conscience, it says, really, uh, it, it, it points us towards truth, towards what is right and towards what is wrong. Another way to put it be, points us towards what honors God and what dishonors God. And all of us, we've felt our conscience before, haven't we? Like, there was something that we were thinking about getting involved in or doing or participating in, but there was something deep down inside that's uh, not a good idea, Todd. And sometimes we lean into our conscious and it, it rescues us, it saves us. And sometimes, well, sometimes we ignore our conscious. We avoid it. And we push on because we want what we want. And it leads to tragedy, devastation, messiness. God, God created us in his image, which means we have a consciousness of God within us, pointing us towards what is right, towards what is wrong. It's why deep down inside of us, all of us, whether we're a follower of Jesus or whether we believe the Bible or not, there's just certain things as human beings, that we go, that's just not right. And there's other things that we say, that just has to change. It's because of conscience. So this is what Paul is speaking of when he says, I maintained a clear conscience before God. Another way we could say this is, who I am determines how I live. Like who I am at the core of my being, my soul, my conscience. Who I am determines how I live. It determines how I think. It determines how I act. Can you say that with me? Who I am determines how I live. Say it again. Who I am determines how I live. Now, that's a powerful truth, but it is a scary truth at the same time, isn't it? Because what it says is that um, how I live, good or bad, it is a reflection of who I am at the core of my being. And sometimes that's a beautiful thing, and sometimes it's a terribly ugly thing. 
when we avoid the conscience that God has placed within us. And Paul said, I've always lived with a clear conscience. Actually, in, in chapter 23 and 24, he really says two things that stick out to me. First, he says, I live with a clear conscience. That is a pure conscience. That is, uh, there was nothing between me and God. I knew that I had done what was right, what was good, what was pure, what was true. But he didn't just say, I kept a clear conscience. Notice in chapter 24, he says, I live with and I maintained a clear conscience. This says that sometimes our conscience needs some extra effort, that it may take some work on our end to maintain a clear conscience. That is, that when I feel myself going down a road and there's something deep in my conscience that's saying, no, 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 don't go there, Todd, I maintain it by saying, whoa, that is not good. That is not right. God, forgive me. Help me turn to you. Let his truth then invade my conscience and give me direction in life so that then before God and even before other people, I can maintain a clear conscience. No, you know what? I did what was right in the end. And Paul had to work at that, he said. But he lived with a clear conscience. That's how, you know, that's how we honor God in the midst of difficulty. Make sure that we're living with a clear conscience. In fact, we see him doing this again as he goes before Felix, the governor. It says, a few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, sending for Paul. They listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus, as he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment. I mean, Paul, he's not holding back here. I mean, he's on trial, and he's in jail now, and he's being brought before, maybe a chance to, to get out of jail free card. And what's he doing? He's just doing more of the same things that landed him jail, in jail the first place. Why? Because he knew in his conscience he had to speak truthfully and honestly about Jesus. And it says, Felix became frightened as a result. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. And then it says, he also hoped that Paul would bribe him. So he sent, him, sent for him quite often and talked with him. He was hoping to find another reason because I think even Felix knew deep down in his conscience he had put an innocent man in prison. And he's looking for some other reason to keep him there and to appease all of the people. I mean, things were so unfair for the Apostle Paul. But he maintained a clear conscience. I wonder for, for you and for I, how's our conscience? How's our soul? I mean, have, when was the last time you just paused to ask yourself that question? Like, how am I really, deep down, am I at peace? Am I angry? Am I unsettled? Do I feel guilt? Is there something I'm ashamed of or should be ashamed of? Another question, is God's word guiding me or am I doing what everyone else in, in, in the culture is doing? 
Not that everything about culture is always all, all bad, but am I letting God's word be the determining factor in my life that shapes my conscience, that shapes my decision-making, that shapes my life so that I can feel free and clean and pure before God? Or am I just going the way of the world? Am I rejecting sin outright? Or am I justifying my sinful actions because it feels good to me? That's a matter of conscience. And we can, we can ignore our conscience. And actually, the Bible says that we can even kind of uh, sear our consciences so that we, be, we start to become numb. After we ignore our conscience time and time and time again, we get cold. It's like we get calloused towards what is true, what is right, what is good, what is pure. Or another way to ask the question, in the face of peer pressure, am I upholding godly convictions or am I just caving to what everyone else is doing so that I can fit in? I love what Martin Luther says about conscience. He says, for my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. What a strong warning. What a way for us to stay faithful to Jesus amidst difficulties. The way we do it is by maintaining a clear conscience. But there's a second thing that I think we're going to learn from Paul, and actually we're going to see Paul learn this very lesson in the text. How do we stay faithful to Jesus amidst difficulty? We don't speak poorly about our leaders. Now, when I say leaders, it can, it can represent a number of things in your life and in my life. It might be a boss. It might be um, a coach. It might be a teacher. It might be your parents when you're the child at home. It might be uh, an elected official, somebody that's in charge. It might be a, a representative. It might be the president. It might be... Now, I'm not saying that you, we have to agree with all of them, but God's word does challenge us to honor and respect those that are put in leadership or authority over us. And Paul, he wanted to uphold this in his life, and he had to learn the lesson the hard way. In chapter 24 of Acts, it says, Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth because of the way that he was responding in the court. It says, But Paul said to him, God will slap you. Paul was pretty bold. <laughs> He says, you, you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me to be struck like that? Look at verse 4. And those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare insult God's high priest? And what we learn next from the text is that Paul didn't realize that Ananias was the high priest. Because if he would have, he would not have disrespected him. And we'll see that from the text. And we see what happens in verse 5. He says, I'm sorry. Isn't that striking to you? I mean, Paul could have easily shifted the blame. He could have justified what he, what he said. Like, well, did you see the guy? He just had them slap me across the face. But he doesn't shift blame. He doesn't explain it away. He doesn't accuse he apologizes. Even though it may not have been right, he apologizes. He says, brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. And there's lots of different uh, thoughts right here, like how did Paul not realize that Ananias was the high priest? 
Some believe that Paul had eyesight problems and so he couldn't make out his face, and that could have been a possibility. Some believe that because Paul had not been to this area for probably 20 years, maybe he didn't recognize Ananias as the high priest in that moment. Others think, well, maybe he just thought, okay, if this guy's a high priest in the Jewish faith, he would never order somebody to slap another person. Who knows what the reason was, but he didn't recognize this person as an official, as a leader. And so how does he respond? He apologizes. And then he reaffirms with the truth of Scripture. He goes back to the book of Exodus. He says, for the Scriptures say, you must not speak of evil of any of your rulers. How do we honor God? How do we stay faithful to Jesus in the midst of difficulty like Paul? We still show respect and honor to our leaders, even when we don't agree with them. Now, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, and man, November's coming, right? And, and, and we're voting, and man, you, you know, you're seeing all the ads, and, and man, what do you see? You see people just tearing people down, just, just berating them, and maybe some of it's true, but is it really necessary? And then once a person's placed in office, then we have to wrestle with, was it, was it our choice or was it somebody else's choice? And how do I feel about that person? And do I respect them? And, and then, you know, we quickly start spouting, well, not, he ain't my senator. He ain't my president. <laughs> and yet he is. He just is. Whether we agree or disagree, God's called us. This is what Paul was reminding himself of, and it was what he was reminding the people listening of. God calls us to still show respect. John Wesley, he handled it this way. He says, I met those of our society that had votes in the ensuing election and advised them. And here's how he advised them. Number one, to vote for the person that they judge most worthy. Now that sounds good, right? That's good wisdom. That's good advice. And that's what I would say, we would say to you, vote for the person that you judge most worthy. But then he says, I also advise them to speak no evil of the person that they voted against. Oh, now that's a little harder, isn't it? And he said, I advise them to make sure that their spirits were not sharpened against those who voted on the other side. Amen. And Paul lived this out, even when he, when he unknowingly showed disrespect to Ananias, the high priest. As soon as he realized it, he made it right. That's how you live with a clear conscience. <laughs> you make it right. And you don't, show, you don't show disrespect to those that are in le- roles of leadership. And there's one third lesson that I think we can learn from the Apostle Paul. When it comes to remaining faithful amidst difficulty, it's allow Jesus to encourage and to comfort you. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, it says, That night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. And there's a couple things that are significant happening here. And we don't, we don't always gain a full picture in our English translation. But that phrase, the Lord appeared, 
R.C. Sproul says, uh, we don't understand how significant this was. It's not like God, Jesus, appeared way over there, you know, and just showed up kind of like in the, in the scene or in the room. He says in the original language, when it says the Lord appeared, it's like Jesus was right there with Paul. He came close to him. The presence of God would have been so large, so powerful, so potent in this moment. And what does he say to the Apostle Paul? Be encouraged. And he says, be encouraged, Paul. He calls him by name. The God of the universe comes close to encourage, to lift up Paul in the midst of all the unfairness and difficulty that he was facing. And he speaks to him, be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. God came close. He encourages Paul. It's like he's saying, Paul, don't you worry. We're going to get through this. And I'm not done with you. I hope that in whatever you're facing, in whatever I'm facing, that we'll maintain a clear conscience. Let's just do the right thing no matter what, no matter how hard it is. And when we don't get it right, let's be the first to say, I'm sorry. I hope that in whatever you, I, we are going through, that will continue to show respect for those that are in leadership above us in any way, shape, or form. And most of all, I hope that no matter what you're going through, what you're facing, what difficulty, what hardship, I hope that you'll pause to let the God of the universe stop, call you by name, and encourage your heart today. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you love us this much. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, his example. And God, I pray that you would help us to maintain a clear conscience before you. And wherever that's tainted right now, help us come to you quickly and make it right. Thank you that it can only be made right because of the sacrifice of Jesus the Savior who paid for all of our mess-ups. And thank you, Jesus, that you want to lead us in honoring and respecting. And Jesus, you want to show up. You want to be large in the room to call us by name and encourage us to stay faithful amidst whatever difficulty we might be facing. Thank you for your care over our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great rest of your weekend, guys.